0: Amen. In the book of Acts, there are a lot of sermons. And in the first sermon from an apostle in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter is preaching. And he says to his listeners in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst As you know, this Jesus delivered up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him, killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a wonderful proclamation from Peter to the Jerusalem crowd. But he doesn't just stop with the news, he begins to recite the Old Testament to them. And when Peter proclaims this to the crowd and quotes from the Old Testament, the passage he quotes in his first sermon in Acts 2 is from Psalm 16. Our passage this morning is that psalm. Because Peter knows, as all the apostles came to clearly see, the psalms foreshadow the suffering, death, and deliverance of Jesus. And in particular, Psalm 16 is quite wonderfully a display of the resurrection hope which Jesus has inaugurated on the third day. The Apostle Paul believed this too. It wasn't just Peter. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching. And when Paul's preaching this sermon, he quotes from Psalm 16 in Acts 13.35. And he concludes that Jesus is the Holy One who was not abandoned to corruption, but was delivered to the path of life forevermore. Psalm 16 holds out the hope of life after death. And the greatest meaning of David's psalm would be for David's greater son, the descendant from David's line, Jesus, who would be raised from corruption and death. This psalm is of David. His name is mentioned in the superscription. The word miktam is a murky word. It's unclear precisely what it means, but because it's a psalm to be sung and enjoyed, it's some kind of musical term that would have been much clearer to the initial readers. But this is a Davidic psalm, and his prayer in verse 1 is bold. He says, Preserve me, O God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The call to be preserved is language of protection. He's calling for God to act upon him in such a way that sustains and guards him. Preserve me, O God. There is much that David faces. There is much suffering that surrounds him. Much sin inwardly that would overwhelm him. And ultimately, there is the enemy of death. He needs the Lord to act upon him in a preserving way. And for this reason, for in you, I take refuge. You see, for God to be the refuge of sinners, that means something. And it grounds hope that we have as believers that we persevere in our knowledge of God and in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. David can pray, preserve me, O God, and he prays with confidence. And the reason he can pray, preserve me, is because God is his refuge and that's not a reality that is in vain. Preserve me from what? Well, we could consider a few possibilities. Charles Spurgeon talks about this language from Psalm 16.1. And Spurgeon says, we should pray like this. Preserve me from the world. Let me not be carried away from its excitements. Preserve me from the devil. Let him not tempt me above what I'm able to bear. Preserve me from myself. Keep me from growing envious and selfish and high-minded, proud and slothful. Preserve me, Spurgeon says, from the evils that I see in others. Preserve me from the evils to which I am myself most apt to run in. Keep me from evils known and from evils unknown. Preserve me, O God. And in ways like that, that's what we mean. That the Lord would guard the hearts of his people and that even beyond death, his covenant love would overcome the last enemy. This seems to be what Psalm 16 points to. A hope beyond death, a hope made more sure by the resurrection of Jesus. The psalmist has a high view of God and his people He prays what he does in verse 1, and the high view of God and of God's people is clear in verses 2 to 3. To the God in whom he takes refuge, he says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. The all caps, Lord, is the word Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. Only one capital letter in translations. O-R-D is lowercase. And that is to use the word Adonai, which is to speak of someone who's a sovereign, a master, one who is Lord over. And he says, here's what I say to Yahweh. You are my sovereign. You are my master. You are my king. This is the king of Israel saying this. The king of Israel is not the king of kings. He is a king, but he has a greater Lord. He says, I say to my Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is a good declaration, a confession from David. Because earlier in Psalm 12, verse 5, The wicked say, who is Lord over us? David is willing to give the right answer. I say to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I don't think he's overstating things. I think he recognizes what is true of God. Taught in the Old and the New Testaments. That God is the fountain of all goodness. One writer puts it this way. The words basically mean apart from thee there is no happiness. For God is the only supreme good. When David says... Apart from you, I have no good. I think he recognizes that the supreme good in all creation is God who brings about creation in the power of his word. And that if there is anything that is good in the world, it is derivative. It is the result of the God who is forever and eternally good. I have no good apart from you. Because after all, if God were not good, how would anything else in the world God has made reflect goodness? There is no good above God, as one writer says. No good apart from God. You could call this, this is David's way of saying, you God are my supreme treasure. I have no good apart from you. This is his high view of God. This is not some low view of God where he thinks upon the creator and redeemer of heaven and earth. And he has somewhat ho-hum thoughts about him. Life is just business as usual. No, for David to reflect on God, here's what he concludes. There is no good apart from you. For you are the fountain and the origin of all goodness. So there is a supremacy that David sees of God. And I wonder if you see it. I wonder if when you think about God and you hear about God from the word of God, if the greatness and grandeur and supremacy of God jumps out at us and delights our souls, it delights David. And not only does David delight in the one who is his heart's treasure, David delights in others who know God also. He says in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Something is combined here. We should notice this in verses 2 and 3. He proclaims the goodness of God. I have no good apart from you. But you see, other people besides David believe that also. Other people will profess that God is to be known, loved, and worshipped in the world God has made. And you know what David's response is to those people? He loves them. His delight is in them because they have in common the profession of what is true of God. So apart from you, I have no good. And what about others? The saints who are in this land. The saints, these excellent ones. David says, oh, I delight in them. I have such delight and joy. And I wonder if your love for God and your view of the people of God are high like David's. If his view of God and his delight in the people of God are something you also long for. That your love for God would in some way reach toward and escalate toward the greatness and supremacy that is always true of him. And that your love for the people of God is something true as well. Because when others profess to know and delight in the living God, it draws you together. Because you are all drawn like magnets to the same source. Coming together in common worship and unity in Jesus. David says, well, I have no good apart from you. What about all the people of God? Oh, I love them. My delight just rises in them. The church of Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment here. The saints in the land, those in the land of promise, in the region of David's reign. Think about how we could say this as Christians. As for the people of God, the Christians, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I wonder if even using that language is something you would hesitate toward because you know how sinful sinners are. And we know how great indeed our sins are requiring a cross and a faithful substitute to bear all of our transgressions. Why is it that David would delight in the saints? Why is it that he would call them the excellent ones? Friends, this language is only true of them because they have taken God as their refuge. It's not because they are so great and in and of themselves they are so righteous. It's just that God, who alone is the fountain of all goodness and righteousness, they have run to Him. And therefore they have become those excellent and godly, the saints, the holy ones. David's delight is in them. And in verses 4 to 8, his commitment to the Lord is strong. He recognizes that not everybody in the land professes and and confesses the truth of God. In verse 4, verses 4 to 8, David's commitment to the Lord is in the midst of those who don't worship God. Nothing new under the sun here when we gather to worship the living Christ and to learn from his word, we recognize we are surrounded in our culture just as every culture in generations prior has been surrounded by those who pursue with zeal what is not God and what does not honor God. So he says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. What's multiplying here? well the end of the sentence here in the ESV is about multiplication you have to go to the beginning of the verse to see what is being compounded here sorrow the sorrows of those who don't worship God that's what it means to run after another God it's false worship a false worship is spiritually disastrous to reject the worship of the living God is the most self-destructive thing image bearers can do The sorrows of their heart multiply. They make their life by their folly more difficult for themselves in a fallen world. Because they pursue what is not God. And they live for what dishonors God. Their sorrows multiply. Why? Because their hearts are completely disoriented. So why would we expect That their life would be one of blessing and stability and spiritual thriving. Their hearts are disoriented in their false worship. David says, okay, if they bring up drink offerings of blood that they pour out, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to imitate the false worship of those around me. Verse 4 is David's resolve not to live in a way conformed to the world that doesn't know God. This is Romans 12, do Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And in verse 4, David knows what goes on. There are drink offerings of blood people pour out, names of gods that people recite on their lips in prayers and incantations and all sorts of rituals. David says, I'm not going to pour out what they do and their gods' names aren't going to be on my lips. I have no good apart from Yahweh. He is my Lord. So David's profession in verse 2 is why he says what he does in verse 4. He recognizes that there is delight to know God. There is joy and peace in knowing God. And it's the sorrows of the false worshipers which will multiply. David doesn't want multiplied sorrow. He doesn't want the sowing of folly to be a reaping of greater grief and devastation. So you know what this means? David and we must pursue the living God. Look at his exclusive claim here in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verses 5 and 6 are part of the psalmist's commitment toward the Lord But we have to know something about this clustering together of terms. Portion, lot, in verse 6, lines of pleasant places, inheritance. You know what verses 5 and 6 are informed by? The earlier parts of the Old Testament of Israel going into the promised land. So the Israelites would have tribes, 12 tribes, heading to receive inheritance. The lines were drawn in the pleasant places. They had been chosen by Lot, the apportioned places and regions, so that when the twelve tribes enter the land, they will occupy a land where the, the portions have been chosen, the lots have been laid out, the lines have fallen by the sovereignty of God in the pleasant places, and the inheritance of a land flowing with milk and honey is a beautiful one. So here's what David is doing. David is taking this language about the promised land And he's talking about himself like he's a priest. Because something we know about the priests is that they didn't have quite this same region of the promised land to inherit. They were told in Numbers 18, the Lord is your inheritance. Because they would have this special service unto God. They would work at the tabernacle and the priests from Aaron's line would serve the holy vessels of the place of worship. David is not from Levi's tribe. But he's trying to use language to say, here's my heart before the Lord. Here is my commitment to the Lord. Here's my resolve. The Lord, He is my chosen portion. In verse 6, the lines have fallen in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, he's not talking about actual geographical territory here. This is language he's using spiritually to apply to the Lord. Yahweh is his portion Yahweh is his inheritance and a beautiful inheritance indeed because he comes to know God Yahweh holds his lot in other words Yahweh and his plans for David are David's delight his cup in verse 5 he says you the Lord my chosen portion and my cup you know a cup that you receive has in it the contents that you are to internalize and David says the Lord he is my cup He is what I have received, and so I take into my hands all that God has given. God himself, my cup, my portion, my inheritance. He is making a spiritual claim. Oh, that these words of David would resonate with us where we'd say, Listen, I know we're not among the tribes of Old Testament Israel going into the promised land, but I like this language. I like saying of God, my portion, my inheritance Because it's saying of God what is true and worthy of His greatness. That there's no good I have apart from you. David recognizes what is great about coming to know God is that we receive God. What is great about being forgiven of sins is that we are reconciled to God. What is great about when we die to go to heaven is that we are reconciled. With the Lord. To be absent from the body. Present with the Lord. What is great. When the return of Christ. Brings about the renewal of all things. And new creation. And wipes away all our tears. Is we will dwell. Everlastingly with God. God is the gospel. And he says here. You are my chosen portion. My cup. My lot. My inheritance. In verse 7 and 8. He concludes his commitment. To the Lord. In this Section of the psalm, I bless the Lord. Now, he doesn't bless the Lord to give God something he lacks. When we consider opportunities to be a blessing to others, we might think of these circumstances as okay, I have a particular item, a resource, or something. Here's a need outside of me that I can meet. So I'm going to bless this person because they have this need and I have this particular whatever it is that they need and therefore they are blessed. When David says, I bless the Lord, this is not like human to human relationships. The Lord has no need, no lack, which David compensates for or makes up or fulfills. The word bless can also be translated praise. And when David says, I bless the Lord, it's another word for offering praise unto God. Not because God lacks, but because God is worthy. David says, The Lord is my portion, my cup. How do we know that? Because David is a worshiper of the Lord. I mean, let's just put it this way what your heart worships, you consider your portion in your cup. It just needs to be the Lord. Because David here says, My Lord is my portion in my cup and his praises unto God I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me Okay well David is receiving counsel from the Lord instruction from the Lord How does that happen Well we're in Psalms 16 this morning we've skipped Psalms 14 and 15 No need to panic we will go right back to those Just taking them in a different order for the occasion of Easter some of you know, we were here for Good Friday in Psalm 13. He can't count or what? No, in Psalm 16, we're in that this morning and we'll work backwards. But in Psalm 1, going all the way back to Psalm 1, the psalmist says that he delights in the law of the Lord. This blessed man delights in the law of the Lord day and night. And he doesn't sit in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to and walk according to their counsel. Here, he blesses the Lord in verse 7 who gives him counsel and in the night my heart instructs me. What's the connection here at this point in Psalm 16? David meditates on the Word of God. How does the Lord give David counsel? The same way... The blessed man doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David is the king of Israel, and you know what his heart delights in? The words of the living God. And because he stores up the word of God in his heart and in his mind, the Lord gives him counsel through his word, because he loves God's word. This is why the last line of verse 7 says, In the night also my heart instructs me. How does David's heart instruct him? Is David saying, like many in our culture say, I follow my heart. That's what I do. My heart instructs me. Wherever my heart leads, there I go. David's heart instructs him because of what's in his heart that's trustworthy to follow. Now what's in David's heart that instructs him? How is the Lord giving him counsel? His heart has meditated on the words of God. And in meditating on the words of God, his heart pursues what is honoring to God. And so David follows. So if you follow your heart that follows after God, that's safe. And David says, My heart instructs me because my heart has been shaped by and informed by and influenced by the word of God. Oh, friends, if we would say, The Lord is my chosen portion, He is my cup, my beautiful inheritance. Let us consider whether we are those who live to praise the Lord and whose hearts love the words of God. Because we praise this God who has made himself known. David says in verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. If you set something before you, you're doing that on purpose. If you're you're looking at something before you, or maybe I should say it this way. If you're looking in front of you and you say, well, this isn't in front of me. Let me put this in front of me. You're either changing your direction or you're putting something that wasn't there in front. It's a deliberate act. David says, I've set the Lord always before me. What does he mean? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What is he talking about? He's talking about the conscious awareness that he cultivates as a worshiper of God. David doesn't go through his days mindlessly, recklessly not thinking about the fact that he's a Christian and there's a God of heaven and earth and a Redeemer who's come to a cross and risen from the dead. David here says, I set the Lord always before me, which means there is a deliberate pursuit, a deliberate pursuit of God. David follows God on purpose. There's no other way to do it. I've set the Lord always before me so that when David walks, he does so following the Lord. He's pursuing the Lord informed by the word of God that forms his heart and therefore his heart instructs him and gives him counsel in the night. I've set the Lord before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You know, at the right hand, that's a position of help, of aid. He's not speaking in any sort of superior position about himself. I'll put the Lord at my hand. No, no, no. That would be a wrong direction to take the end of verse eight. It's like, let's say you're going about something and you say, I want you with me. I want you with me while I'm doing this. It's so that the support and the aid and the strength that is needed, the advice and the guidance and the defense that is needed is there. Because the one you need present with you is there. What is David saying? What he knows about God is that in his pursuit of God, God is with him. And he's at his right hand, David says. I shall not be shaken, therefore. He speaks here of a life that is stable before God, pursuing God on a firm foundation of knowing God according to his word. We come lastly in verses 9 to 11 to the psalmist's confidence. David's conclusion here is a conclusion about God that reaches beyond his earthly life. David will not be king forever. He knows that he will have a successor. And he knows that there are promises. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. That a seed an offspring from his line. Will one day be raised up by God. To rule forever. David says in verse 9. In light of God's presence with him. His word that instructs him. His own heart that gives praise and honor to God. He says therefore my heart is glad. And my whole being Rejoices. David is trying to capture here what it means for him that he knows the living God. And it brings David such delight. It brings David such joy that he talks not just about the gladness of his heart. But it's as if his whole being from his head to his feet is filled and brimming with rejoicing. The Psalms are filled with clear examples that David faces affliction. David is a suffering king. And David, like all who've gone before him, would die. And yet David says in verse 9, My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure. Which is quite something when we know that David will ultimately be in the grave. What is David talking about? My flesh dwells secure. His very existence is not just going to be threatened by death. The cords of death are going to overcome him. And he will be brought to bodily death. But in verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, so verses 9 and 10 are talking about David's flesh, his body, being secure. And in verse 10, not being abandoned. Sheol here is a reference to the place of the dead, perhaps the grave or beyond. And is saying here, here's what I know about you, Lord, you don't. Abandon your people. You will not abandon my soul to shield. So at death, at death we experience, don't we? A separation of soul and body. We've been created as embodied creatures filled with the breath of life and yet death brings disembodiment. This is not the way we were created to be. Which is why resurrection of the dead accomplishes The design of God from the beginning, new creation life, which will bring us from the grave. He says in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. A holy one there is a singular, your holy one. And you might think initially David is talking about himself. And I think that's true. David will not be abandoned. The holy one will not see corruption in the ultimate sense. His body remaining in the grave. Why does he speak this way? I think, again, David has been shaped by the earlier scriptures. David knows that the covenant promises of God reach beyond death and are not stopped by death, but in fact are covenant promises that are overcoming death on an appointed day. David says, you make known to me the path of life. See the interplay here? In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the security of his body. And in verse 10, the corruption of death. And in verse 11, the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. This is a kind of life beyond mere earthly life. I don't think David is saying, because I know you, Lord, my body is not going to die. You're just going to sustain that. When he says, preserve me, O God, in verse 1, for in you I take refuge The great preservation work of God is through resurrection of the dead because it's a work that lasts forever. It's a work that is an eternal resurrection glory. He says in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You see, David David doesn't believe what he does because he thinks he's stumbled upon some abstract ideas and that he's sort of compiled together and assembled in his own cleverness. And he thinks to himself, here's the way I bet this works. He believes what's been made known. And the way you do that is you read and study and love the scriptures. God has made known to David the path of life. And David knows in the presence of God there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. What's the kind of life David has in view here? Well, the kind of life we've been made for Not some kind of life of indifference or dullness or boredom. Not some kind of lesser than existence. Some ethereal, eternal experience that we would look at from our perspective and think, I don't know if what's coming is better than what's now. David knows, according to the word of God, we cannot fathom the glory of what is to come. And he says in verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. We've never experienced fullness of joy. We know what it is like to have bursts of joy in our lives that fade and we hate that it happens. We wish we could take joy in our hands when it's happening and think to ourselves, I just want this to go on. I just don't want this to end. And yet we feel like it's just sand through our fingers. However much we think we can hold on to it, we just can't seem to do it. But he knows this of God, that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. How can that be? It can be because of who God is. I have no good apart from you. I have no joy apart from you. We might as well say in your presence there is fullness of joy, everlasting goodness. So in other words, to come to know God is to have pledged by the very resurrection of Jesus, the kind of life we will be raised to receive at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is not an overstatement to say we were made for everlasting joy in God. That's what Psalm 16 says our future is. We were made for everlasting delight and pleasure with God. That is what Psalm 16 says. Every earthly pleasure is a taste of this, every delight. So fleeting as it is, is a shadow of what is to come. A glory that is eternal. Pleasure unending. Joy that is full and overflowing. We were made for this. And Jesus is the one who makes known to us the path of life. He doesn't say, let me give you the address for it. You're going to want to write this down. He says, I am the way... The truth and the life, no one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except by me. In John 14, 6, when David says in Psalm sixteen eleven, you make known to me the path of life. Yes, God indeed in the fullness of his word and in the fullness of redemptive history has made known to us the path of life and the way is Jesus. We confess him and we profess his great work. Psalm 16 was very meaningful to the disciples. Peter preached it in Acts 2. Paul preaches Psalm 16 in Acts 13. And based on those two examples, I think we could say in the track record of the apostles preaching throughout the early church, that Psalm 16 got preached a lot. And it gets preached a lot because these are people who are wanting to confess what they know of God, to respond to His Word and to internalize it in their hearts, and to be true worshipers on the path of life. And if we're going to do that, then we've got to follow Jesus. And Peter preaches Christ. He proclaims to his listeners in Israel in Acts chapter 2 that God has attested who Christ is by all the signs and wonders of Jesus. But then he says to them, here's what you did. You rejected him. He suffered under you. You killed him. But God raised him up because it was impossible for death to hold him. Why was it impossible that death hold on to the Holy One of God? Because of what Psalm 16 says. Peter quotes from Psalm 16. And then says in Acts 2.25. Brothers. I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet. Peter says. David being therefore a prophet. And knowing God had sworn with an oath to him. That he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he, Christ, was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This, Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, Peter says. Well, and of course Peter was, because on the first day of the week, Jesus will make Himself known to the disciples in resurrection glory and everlasting bodily life and glory. The life that we were made for, now the first fruits of which we proclaim has come in Jesus. In the particular year of Jesus' death, He rises from the dead, not only on the first day of the week. Having died on Passover, the first day of the week after Passover... On that year was also the feast of first fruits. And when Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus has died as our Passover lamb and has risen from the grave as the first fruits of the life we were made for, fullness of joy, and at the right hand of God, pleasures forevermore. God has made known the path of life, and his name is Jesus. So here's Peter preaching this. He reads Psalm 16, and Peter can't think about Psalm 16 without thinking about his Savior. Well, then hopefully neither will we. But indeed, read Psalm 16 and rejoice in what's already come to pass in Christ. He finishes his sermon in Acts chapter 2 and people have a question and it's the most important question there is. They say, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter says, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, what we need there is part of this remedy of the resurrection good news of Jesus. We need forgiveness of sins, we need the powerful work of the Holy Spirit of God upon our hearts and lives. We need to turn from what is wicked and we need to profess with the saints, the excellent ones of the land, that we have Christ as our Savior and through baptism the public profession takes place. When we hear from Psalm 16, our question this morning must be the same. Psalm 16 was preached 2,000 years ago after Jesus was raised from the dead. And as we think about the resurrection of Jesus, our question should be, so what now shall we do? And the answer must be, we turn from our sins, we are baptized in the name of Christ, we receive His blessed Holy Spirit, because we have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one, for the forgiveness of our sins. Friend, I'm aware that this morning, on April the 9th, 2023, you might gather in this place and your heart does not follow Christ. You have not believed the good news of the gospel. You have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have lived for other things. The blood libations and offerings talked about in verse 4. And the other idolatrous pursuits that you thought would satisfy your heart. You've tried them. And what you have found is that your sorrows have multiplied. What you need is Christ. And God has made known to us the path of life. And His name is Jesus. And on the cross he has borne our sins. He has taken all our transgression upon himself. Because he had no sin. As the son of God. Truly divine and truly man. He alone could bear all of our sins. To satisfy divine justice. Justice that we deserved upon our heads. And Christ a faithful substitute. Takes our transgressions. So that he who had no sin. The Lord Jesus. Would become sin in our place. And then say it is finished so that all whose refuge is the Lord Jesus have atonement in Him. Friend, when you read verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. We can say in light of the good news of Jesus, Lord, forgive me of my sins, for in You I take refuge. This is the day. This is the day on April 9th. This is the day we flee to Christ we turn from sin. We call upon the name of Christ, the risen One the one who did not see decay, the one who overcame corruption, the one who is the Holy One of God, the one preached by Paul and Peter, the one the apostles saw and bore witness to as the risen one. We have Him as our refuge. He will not turn you away. You say you would not believe what I've done though. All that you have done, Christ has taken upon His head. There is no sin that you can come to Christ with that He has not atoned for. It is a complete atonement. Yeah. So flee to Christ. You have an all sufficient Savior. You say oh but all my unrighteousness and all my shame. Yes. So then take it all to Christ. So that you will see, receive from him all his righteousness and his victory. You say oh all of my weakness and all my defeat. So then go to him for his strength and for his deliverance. All that we need is all that Christ is. So go to Christ. He will receive you. Let's pray.